Let me invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn to 1 Timothy and chapter 3. 1 Timothy and chapter 3. My message this afternoon is entitled Africanizing the Church or Christianizing Africa. I'm sure you can tell I'm playing with words there. But really, uh, it's, it's a burden that uh, I have. It's a matter that I feel needs serious attention. It's a matter that I have been wrestling with um, from a biblical perspective, uh, seeking to, to, first of all, answer the question, you know, where is all this coming from? And um, how best ought we to, to deal with it? In a few moments, you will understand what that thing is. But uh, ultimately, um, it's, it's a, a thinking that seems to, to be gripping the, um, the church um, across Africa um, that has to do with um, a sense that we ought to remove Western trappings from uh, the Christian faith and Africanize it. And uh, I'm, I'm saying let's give it a little bit of thought so that we may begin to understand really what does God and better still, the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus, who is the head of the church, what is it that he really wants us to do? In First um, Timothy chapter 3, uh, I will just read verse 14 and verse 15. The Bible says there, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Very well then, with respect to this question, should we be thinking primarily of Africanizing the church or Christianizing Africa, it is best that I quickly begin with uh, a, a historical narrative. If you were to go back 100 years, perhaps 150 years in Africa, um, very few places would have been Christian. Um, it was still very much in pioneer stage. Uh, the, the coastal regions would have had quite some missionary activities. But going further into the inland, the Christian faith was just beginning to uh, come in. In fact, a lot of missionaries tended to, to die from uh, malaria, and, and so it was hard work getting the Christian faith off the ground. Fast forward to today, south of the Sahara, 80% easily of Africans would consider themselves Christian. Now, most likely they are not. It is simply the fact that they uh, have been brought up in Christian homes or they went through uh, a, a Christian boarding school or they, uh, they were treated uh, in a Christian hospital, um, or baptized as they were babies, etc., etc. Uh, some of them do not even remember the last time they ever stepped into church. In other words, their own thinking amounts to something like, well, I'm not a Muslim, so I must be a Christian. So there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in the actual work of evangelism. While the, the main uh, missions work was in the hands of uh, missionaries, there were already a, a number of individuals, uh, indigenous African individuals, uh, often styled prophets, who wanted a Christianity that was more African. 
and, and consequently, there would be pockets of rebellion taking place in various parts of, of Africa from such individuals because they tended to have quite a following. And usually, these were not individuals that were properly, formally trained in theology. But they seemed to display some unusual power related to evil spirits, and consequently, many people would go after them and follow them. The missionaries rejected this um, because they saw their tendency towards syncretism. And so there was a, a holding on to the fort while these individuals were, uh, as it were, excommunicated from the, the churches that were still under missionary oversight. In the last 60 years or so, the Western missionaries who planted Christianity in Africa have largely handed over leadership to indigenous African leaders. And so, generally speaking, across uh, the continent, that is what you will find. And then, mix that with the fact that in this same century that we've just come from, um, that's where the, the, the Pentecostal movement uh, came into um, play, and it invariably therefore provided uh, an environment where uh, what was once seen as a threat, and that is this prophet figure, has now become acceptable within the wider evangelical body. And consequently, uh, today as I speak, you, you will have individuals who are in evangelical uh, churches who designate themselves as prophet so and so. In fact, some of them are even apostle so and so. I'm sure you have them in your countries as well. Um, now, it's really in this period that therefore there has uh, become uh, commonplace today in many parts of, of Africa, um, theologians and pastors who are basically saying, fine, we, we have taken over the reins of the churches and denominations and so on, uh, but what we still have by and large is, is a Western form of, of worship. And, and so we, we need to, to do in the context of the church what was done in the context of uh, politics. We need to Africanize Christianity. We need to decolonize it. Another popular phrase is we need to de-westernize the Christian church. And that's really what I mean by the phrase Africanizing the church. Now this tends to be, especially in areas where the Christian church has, I'm using the phrase here, been invaded in terms of within its leadership by individuals who have usually another agenda. And let me mention at least two. One is theologians in Bible colleges having an upper hand in the church. And let me explain. Those of us who are pastors in our churches Often what we do is quite basic. Expound the scriptures and apply them to the flock and go home. But it's usually individuals who don't have that real connectivity with the local church, the Tom, Dick, and Harry, the Mary, and John in the pews that tend to always be looking for something new, some 
agenda, some latest fad that end up thinking as they are maybe preparing dissertations or whatever else it might be that they're doing in, in uh, seminaries and Bible colleges that certain other issues need to be uh, brought into the life of the church. I will be addressing one of them a little later. The second tends to be hurting individuals in a society that has just begun to undergo indigenization. Now, this indigenization may easily be in terms of a country that's just become independent from a Western nation. And because this is still fresh, individuals are still hurting from the injustices that were there they tend to bring that fight now into the context of the church as well. So that what they are seeing happening on the outside, they must also see happening within the context of the church. So the complaint often is that many African churches are continuing to be Western in church polity, Western in theology and doctrine, and Western in worship. The argument being that must change. Now, whereas this might be true to some extent, we still need to answer the question, how are we expected to address it? The noise I'm hearing seems to be suggesting that we must see how we as Africans do things. For instance, how were we worshiping our gods before the Western missionaries brought in Christianity? And all we have to do then is, as it were, remove the false god, the wrong god, and now put in Yahweh, God, as he is taught in the Bible. That seems to be the general thrust. Now, I realize I'm not in Africa right now. I'm in the U.S. But... The reason why I felt this was important for us to address was not because I thought we should only address the African issue, but because in principle, all of us need to face this matter. Whether we are in the USA, South America, Europe, Asia, it doesn't matter where we are. The question is going to come up. How should today's church wherever you might be, function and express itself in the cultural context that you find yourselves in. Especially that the theme for this symposium is ecclesiology. How should we, especially in the midst of the winds, that are blowing. For instance, I think we all know that in the context of um, the West, there is the whole issue of uh, homosexuality that's pushing an agenda from the outside in. Again, it's exactly the same thing. The church has to answer the question, how, what's the modus operandi, the, the model of operation by which we should be dealing with these kinds of cultural pressures that are being brought upon us. Now, thankfully, we have the Bible. We have the Word of God that is to be our primary guide in all matters of faith and conduct. 
We can go to this book in order to answer the question, what kind of church should we have today in the midst of these pressures that indeed we feel because of our immediate historical context? And the passage that I read to you earlier, 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 14, has something to say to us about this. Because those of you who are familiar with the background of 1 Timothy, um, Paul specifically left Timothy in Ephesus in order for him to help with the church that was there. And there were some negative issues that he needed to deal with. But as you read through this book, you see that there are quite a lot of instructions that are provided throughout this epistle and indeed the second epistle that he gives and finally Titus with respect to Crete. What I love about this passage that I have read to you is that Paul was anxious to catch up with Timothy while he is doing his pastoral activities in this church. And the reason why he was anxious to do so was out of a concern that Timothy may end up conducting affairs in the church in a way that ties up with his own pragmatic thinking instead of the actual mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says again, if I can read that to you, verse 14 of chapter 3, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, and that's the point, just in case I take longer to get to you, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Clearly, Paul did not want Timothy to simply start using his own initiative. After all, I have apostolic sanction. Paul left me here. And therefore, I can use my own logic, my own cultural background to sort out issues here. Paul says, no. Before Timothy, you mess things up. Here is a, a letter to tell you how things ought to be done. And all you need to do is to read this and you will see quite a lot there about, for instance, the priority of prayer, the role of men in the church, the role of women in the church, the choosing or qualifications that are there of, of uh, leaders in the church. You have there for elders, you have there for deacons. He deals with... Uh, how to handle widows, and so on. There's a lot in this passage, rather in this letter, that Paul is giving to Timothy. Why? Well, he gives us the reason there. Because the church is the household of God. It is the church of the living God. It is a pillar and buttress of the truth. The point he's making there is that, I think we must have heard it from one or two of the speakers earlier, uh, the church is not ours. It belongs to someone else. We are merely stewards of it. So what ought to move us in decision-making is not what has happened out there and we need now to, to react. Rather, it must be, what does the great head of the church say about this matter? 
because he owns it. And ours is to simply ensure that we implement his mind. And that's what Paul was seeking for Timothy to do here. And therefore, our approach should be along the lines of the regulative principle that God has stated how he wants to be worshipped and how he wants his church to be governed. And that we have no right to start bringing into the church whatsoever we want, which is the normative principle. It's important that we capture that spirit here in the text. And again, we answered the question, it is because it is God's church, but it's also because it's the pillar and buttress of the truth. In other words, the church ought to be so organized that it upholds the truth of who God is and how he saves sinners. And if we are beginning to bring into the church things that are clouding that out, and consequently the visibility of this glorious gospel that enables us to consequently worship the living God with a love for him, then clearly we are abusing the church. We are using it for wrong ends. Now, here's my quick point. If you read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and remember Timothy was in Ephesus, and if you also read Titus, whom Paul left in Crete, when you look at these two uh, letters, is there anything in them that even remotely suggests to you that they sh these two men should do their utmost to make the church conform to its culture? Do you find there Paul saying to Titus, remember, the church is in Crete. So make sure that everything there is being done like the Cretans. In fact, you find the exact opposite. He says to them, guess what? This is what their own prophets say about Cretans. And then he says, rebuke them sharply. You see, when you read these epistles, you find that the emphasis there is on salvation and sanctification through the preaching of the word. That's what you find there. You find that it's about securing God-centered worship rather than man-centered worship that God may be glorified in his church. Now, it's not just 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. I can challenge you also to look at any of the New Testament epistles and see whether there is any effort on the part of the Apostle Paul as he's writing to the churches that is busy saying to them, well, you see, the Asian churches should worship this way. But you in Macedonia and Achaia, you should have a different way of worship. Please, if you stay in your Bible, show it to me. 
often you're not even conscious as to where these churches really are until you go to Bible college and then they start teaching you on a map where these places are. And of course, oh, wow, so this is where they were. You thought they were next door to each other, all of them. Because Paul and the other apostles were not about issues of promoting a particular culture. No. If it, it was any culture, it was clearly to do with God, a culture around the living God. But you know, it makes sense. Because if we can go even further back to the Gospels, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the Samaritan woman made it clear that the time is coming and now is when God will be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So sorry, Samaritans. It's not moving in your direction. And just in case some Jews are getting a little excited, this side, sorry Jews, it ain't coming in your direction too. God seeks worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. And that you begin to see carried over into the epistles and the emphasis that was there. That's the New Testament or New Covenant. In fact, pushing it even a little further, going all the way to the Sermon on the Mount, at the beginning of the book of Matthew, Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So instead of beginning with what's happening out in the world and saying, yeah, you see, let's now bring it into the church, we should be saying, what is the God of the Bible saying? Let's take it into the world. Supposed to be the other way around. And it's this matter that concerns me. That we are having theologians who are busy seeking to impose on the church whatever it is that they are picking up out there as they are doing their research and they are putting together their dissertations and so on and so forth. They're now seeking to impose it upon the church from the outside. Instead of being busy expounding this book, expounding this book faithfully, consistently, and then applying it to the lives of the people that are there. We've just heard about Jews and Arabs. An obvious area that comes to mind is, is Romans 14, where Paul deals with the, the question of, of Jews and Gentiles. They had their cultures deeply ingrained even in their worship. Paul did not come in and say, okay, okay, you guys, stop fighting, stop fighting. Jews, just go across the road and have Jews First Baptist Church. You can have all that which you've been wanting over there. Gentiles, why fight? Go to the opposite end and also have Gentiles First Baptist Church. 
and you can also have your own thing over there. Which is basically what we're now being told. The emphasis is not that we are Christians, but we are Africans. And it's Africans, Africans, Africans. We, we must show them that we are Africans. Well, as I hope to argue, we are Christians who just happen to be Africans. <laughs> That's where the emphasis ought to be. And that was what Paul was basically saying to the Jews and the Gentiles. He was saying to them, you now have one Lord. So you better learn how to get along. You better set aside some of your own natural peculiarities. Because you are one body. There's only one church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brethren, let me hurry on. By saying what I've just said, I am not saying that Christianity will look exactly the same everywhere in the world. Of course not. Of course not. And I'm not saying that there are no aspects of the worship of God that expresses something of the culture in which the church is found. For instance, musical instruments. It's obvious. You can't drag a piano into a village in Africa. <laughs> it's obvious. They will have their forms of instruments that they will use. And I'm not saying that there are no changes that should take place in order for the Christian faith to be more natural in its context. Again, I'm not saying that. And finally, I'm not saying there are no issues that are peculiarly African that need to be given special attention by African church leaders. Because it's very easy for people to begin saying, is this what he was there for saying? But listen to me carefully. What I'm asking is, what should be changing the other? Is it the gospel through the church that must have a sorting and lighting effect upon our world? Or is it our world and who we have always been that should be having the effect upon the church. Now let me put it this way. Some of the popular phrases you hear in the context of theology is something like this. We must have an African theology. We need an African hermeneutic. We need African ethics. We must have African worship. And usually that's the most visible, the worship part. You don't seem to notice African Hermeneutics. I've quoted here someone whose name I won't mention, but this is, he's from South Africa. This is what he says, and just a section of the quote. South African black theology needs to continue its anti-racist critique 
of African Christianity. It must also develop its tremendous strides in biblical hermeneutics further. Nor have issues of Africanization, enculturization, and identity expired. African theology needs to continue addressing these things. What I'm saying is that in addressing these established and still relevant agendas, black and African theologies will need to do so in consultation with insights from such emerging theologies as I have sketched above. So I'm asking the question, what exactly is this? What's this animal called African theology? Because I thought there's only one theology. The study of God. Is God different for Africans? Different for Asians? Different for Europeans? Different for South Americans? Has it come across differently? Or is there one God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ? So what is this African theology? Shouldn't it instead be biblical theology, biblical ethics, biblical hermeneutics, biblical worship? But when it is being applied, then it will be applied in the area where it's relevant. So for instance, if I'm teaching from 1 Timothy and chapter 3, and I'm on leadership, and I'm in Africa, I will say and really emphasize that the fact that a person is a chief does not mean he can be an elder. The fact that he's a, a headman in the village does not make him a church elder. Church eldership is not about the amount of white hair on your head or the lack of hair on your head. It's about spirituality, godliness, spiritual maturity, and I will show it from there. It's a direct exposition. The application is what is now different, because if I'm here now and I'm telling you that a church elder, uh, rather a, a chief, um, doesn't necessarily qualify to be uh, a, a church elder, most of you will be thinking, now, does he know where he is at the moment? Because you don't live in that kind of context. So it's biblical theology, biblical ethics being applied to Africa. To be calling it African ethics and, and African theology, to me, confuses things. And so, for instance, if I'm a pastor in South Africa, I will not be speaking about South African black theology. What instead I'll do is, assuming the problem is that of this vengeance, revenge atmosphere, what is calling here anti-racist. As I'm expounding Romans 12, where God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. 
I will, to borrow an image to do with cars, I will park my car there, switch off engine, remove the keys, and throw them away. Because I will want to address the subject of nursing a grudge, ending up producing hatred, and in the process beginning to do God's work for him and messing it up. Now again, that's not African theology. I'm simply doing the job of a pastor. I'm in Romans 12. I've arrived at that text and I'm faithfully applying it to the needs of the people who are there before me. So, what animal is this that theologians are now sort of waving in our faces? African this, African that. Imagine the situation we just heard about in the last message, Arabs and Jews. Just imagine them looking at each other and saying, well, you know, you are the one who's now in Israel territory. <laughs> we'll make you see how we Israelites do things, and we Israelites, and we Israelites. Come on. As our brother said, forget that and forget the Arab thing. You are one in Christ. Rejoice in the gospel. Let that so engulf you that you will be thinking about your brother, your sister, and their good. All you need to do is, is to go back to the early church in Africa. Consider men like Augustine, Tertullian, Origen, Clement, and so on. Do you find in their writings this, you know, we're Africans? <laughs> Let's show these people from sort of the Israel Middle East kind of area. Let's show them. No. They were preoccupied with big issues. The three persons in the Trinity. They dealt with that. They dealt with Christology. The two persons in one Christ. They laid foundations that up to today we are benefiting from right across the globe. And all I'm saying is we need to get back there to put first things first and ensure that what the Christian faith is all about is what's oozing out of our churches. Let me quickly say one or two things before uh, I close. One major problem with this Africanizing of the church is that the truth of the matter as my son says, truth be told, African culture is not monolithic. We like to paint it as such to the outside world, but we know it isn't. So what, what, what are we going to do in the process? Before long, we'll have now I'm in Zimbabwe for a few minutes, who have Shona theology, Shona ethics, Shona this, and the other guys will have Ndebele ethics, Ndebele theology, Ndebele, come on! We have one Bible. But the other problem is that African culture is dynamic, like any other culture. 
So when you start going to dig into how you did things at the end of the 18th century, your very own children today who are moving around with smartphones will be thinking, where did you get that from? Noah's Ark? Because culture is dynamic. So in the end, we are simply creating problems where we don't even need to have problems. Simply expound the good old book, man. That's all. Open the cage, as Pedron says, and let that lion out. It will do its job. As I said, this can be applied anywhere. It can be applied in Israel, in Palestine, in Russia, Australia, in Asia, even here in the United States. We must recognize that we should not begin with ourselves. We are not the ones at the center of the Christian church. We must begin with God, who he is. And thankfully, he has revealed himself in this book. That's where we need to begin and then inform our culture, inform our surroundings, challenge our people to a more biblical faith. So even with respect to worship, what we should ask ourselves is, by going from Genesis to Revelation, how has God said he is to be worshipped? Teach that to the people. And most likely, what is often excused as worship, because we're Africans, which is often senseless dancing, you soon discover it will evaporate. Because what you will see as you're opening up this book is not God who's simply saying, have fun. Come on, just keep on dancing and dance and dance. Just keep on dancing after all, you Africans. You won't find it in these passages. <laughs> you will find the book clearly teaching that worship is acknowledging who God is and his worth. It is worth-ship. It is in truth. His person and his work. And consequently, responding to it in thanksgiving in adoration and in humble submission. You won't get that out from the culture. You have to inform the culture. We heard earlier also from the seven churches of Asia, particularly the, the letter to the Philadelphians and how Again, you can't miss that there was nothing there about, you know, in where you guys are, this is the way things ought to be because it's your culture. In fact, a lot of what you have in those letters are rebukes to those churches because they are conforming to their environment. And Jesus Christ is not happy about it. 
May I plead with us that we must be Christians who just happen to be Africans. In churches that are primarily biblical because they are gospel-saturated. To borrow the words of a nice little chorus, that we should turn our eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And consequently, may the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that as many of us are in the midst of all kinds of winds that blow, help us to fix our attention on that which is truly biblical, that which will alone last because it represents your mind and your will here on earth. That, Father, if there are any individuals among us that have jumped onto this bandwagon of a kind of cultural Christianity, that they might be recalled to that which is a biblical Christianity. And not just in Africa, Lord, anywhere else on this planet, Grant that we might learn to draw water out of this glorious book and refresh your people week by week. That you, O oh Lord, would be happy with what we heard earlier on as your kingdom on earth. That you would be happy with your church. For Jesus' sake, amen.